Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name is Dave Robinson, and on behalf of Dr. Ashley Best and the rest of the Bench Talk team, we want to thank you for tuning in today. This show is about bringing science to the people. We want the show to be a clearinghouse for the research that is important to all of us. So we've spent this week scouring the library stacks for research publications that are just too interesting to be ignored. Let's get started. Hey, have you been on a diet lately? It seems like everyone's trying to lose weight these days. Well, what are the best foods to eat if you're interested in losing weight or if you just want to maintain your current weight? How much carbohydrate should we be eating? You know, foods containing lots of sugars or starch. How much protein should we be eating? Foods like meat, nuts, and beans. What about fats? What should our attitude about fats be? I recently read a paper published in the August 16, 2018 issue of The Lancet Public Health. This is an open access journal. It's available freely on the web. This paper was written by a group of scientists and physicians, mostly housed in Boston, Massachusetts. This paper has been getting some criticism lately, and I'll try to uh, summarize that at the end of the story. Now, I'm certainly not a nutritionist or a diet expert, but from what I've read in this paper, it looks like they're saying that the best approach to losing weight is to consume less carbohydrate. But carbohydrates are not all equal. There's simple carbohydrates. That's basically sugar. And sugar, of course, is abundant in candy, soda, desserts like cookies, cake, ice cream. But simple carbohydrates are also in natural fruits like oranges, apples, and watermelons. Then there's the complex carbohydrates like starch. And starchy foods include things like bread, pasta, rice, and potatoes. So when you say carbohydrate, you've got simple carbohydrates, the sugars, and you've got the more complex carbohydrates, starch. They're two different things. Of course, one of the important elements to consider when you're talking about diets is not simply how much carbohydrate a person's consuming or how much protein or how much fat. It's what's the source of those different kinds of nutrients. Is it animal protein or is it plant protein? Is it natural like eating an apple or is it processed like eating a candy bar or potato chips? There are several parts of this research paper. First of all, they surveyed more than 15,000 different people that were living in four different places in the U.S. back in 1988, and they asked these people about their dietary habits. So they recruited people between the ages of 45 and 64, so they were middle-aged or more. These people lived in either North Carolina, Mississippi, Minnesota, or Maryland. And this was uh, back in 1988. Then they waited 25 years and assessed the death rates among all these subjects. Of course, they determined what the subjects actually died of. And then they looked for correlations between what they ate those 25 years and what they died of. Now, they didn't just interview these subjects in 1988 and then wait until 2013 before gathering any more data. There were four follow-up visits with the subjects at various time points during their 25-year period of study. That way they could assess whether the diet changed, whether the exercise routine changed, and whether there are any alterations in the health of the patients. Since we're talking about methods and materials for this research, I should tell you that the researchers excluded certain people from this study. 
They excluded people who are having extremely high levels of caloric intake, and they excluded people with extremely low caloric intake. And this is one of the reasons why there's some criticism of this paper. So they excluded people with very extreme caloric intakes, whereas in actuality, that includes a lot of us here in the United States. During each one of these visits, and now we're talking about six different interviews with each patient, the patients filled out a questionnaire about what they were consuming at that time, and this is important, in what quantity of foods that they were eating at that time. So they made sure that every person knew what the standard portion sizes were, so um, everything could be comparable to each other. And when it came to fats and proteins, they determined what proportion of the diet was animal fat and protein and what proportion of the diet was plant fat and protein. So they looked at both the quantity and the quality of the foods that each subject was eating. They also kept track of the race, gender, educational level, smoking, physical activity, body weight of each of the subjects. The correlation analysis produced some pretty interesting results. The subjects who appeared to eat the fewest carbohydrates, that's sugars and starches, they tended to be younger, male, not black, college graduates who had higher income, but they tended to exercise less, smoke more, and have a higher body mass index, so they weighed more. These low-carb eaters also tended to eat more animal products rather than plant products. Don't forget that these subjects were older folks. They started off being between the ages of 45 and 64, and the study went on for 25 years. So by the end of the study, the age range would have been more like 70 to 89 years of age. A lot of the subjects would have died during the course of this study, and the researchers kept track of that. After 25 years, more than 6,000 of the subjects had died. That was about a 41% mortality rate. The highest rate of mortality was in those people who were consuming the lowest amount of carbohydrate that I just mentioned. That's that group of younger white men with good jobs. They smoked more, they exercised less, they ate more animal products, and they weighed more. These were the subjects who were more likely to die during the course of this study. So this makes it seem like eating fewer carbohydrates increases our chances of dying early. So that just means we're going to live longer if we stay away from sugars and starches? Well, it might not be that easy because remember, the researchers also observed that these low-carb eaters were eating more animal products. So were they dying earlier because they were eating more fat and protein from animals? Another interesting observation they found in this research was that people who ate relatively high amounts of carbohydrate, sugar and starch, they tended to die earlier too. It was actually the people who ate moderate amounts of carbohydrate who actually lived the longest during the course of this study. Moderation, that's what it's all about. They made some interesting predictions based on the result of these 6,000 deaths and what each subject ate. They predicted that a 50-year-old participant who consumed relatively low amounts of carbohydrate, meaning that less than 30% of all the energy they consumed was carbohydrate, so a low-carb eater would live another 29.1 years from being 50 years old. 29.1 years. So your average 50-year-old low-carb consumer is going to live to about 79.1 years of age. 
That same person consuming 50 to 55% of their energy is carbohydrate. That's a mid-carb consumer. They would live another 33.1 years, which would make them 88.1 years of age at death. That's four years longer than the low-carb person. And then that same person consuming high levels of carbohydrate, where more than 65% of their energy was from carbohydrates, they would live 32 years more. That would take them to the age of 82, which is still three years longer than with the low-carb diet, but more than a year less than someone who's eating intermediate levels of carbohydrates. So that tells me you don't have to completely deny yourself sweets and pastas and breads. Just consume them in moderation and you'll lengthen your lifespan compared to those folks who are eating too many carbs or not enough carbs. A second approach that they took in this paper was to analyze the data from seven different multinational studies where researchers had done similar kinds of surveys. This is called meta-analysis, when you examine data that other researchers have already published. These other studies were done in places like the United States, Sweden, Greece, and Japan, and they involved something like 370,000 people. Now, these studies were challenging because the folks in these different cultures consume very different foods, so that had to be factored in. The people of the U.S. and Europe tend to eat less carbohydrate anyway because they're eating more protein and fats, whereas the people in Japan are eating more carbohydrates because they're consuming more rice and less meat. The overall patterns in these international studies were very similar to that of the previously mentioned study that I just told you about. That is, in case you forgot, there's an optimal amount of carbohydrates that we should be consuming. We shouldn't be consuming too much or too little. As a plant biologist, I was interested in the third line of research that they explored in this paper, and that was to look at whether there were differences in death rates between people who are eating more food derived from animals versus food derived from plants. After all, they did have all this beautiful data from 25 years of what people were eating and how it affected their mortality. So remember, the low-carbohydrate diets were correlated with the earliest mortality, but what they found was that it was a lot worse if people were consuming lower carbohydrates because they were eating more animal fat and protein. If they were consuming less carbohydrates because they were getting their fats and proteins from plant material like nuts, whole wheat bread, peanut butter, etc., that was a lot better. So that raises the question, what's the ideal amount of carbohydrate to eat if you're a vegetarian or a vegan? Does eating more plant material sort of counteract the bad effects of carbohydrate? Well, it turns out they don't really know because there just weren't enough vegetarians or vegans in this study to really answer that question. So what appears to be the worst thing for us to do is replace carbohydrates in our diets with fats and proteins from animals. Now, I see a lot of Americans eating that way. Cutting out sweets and soda is great, but if you're just going to eat lots of meat in its place, it's just going to backfire. If you're not going to eat a lot of plant material, you're basically reducing the amount of plant fiber, which is very important to the digestive system. You're missing out on important vitamins, minerals, and various phytochemicals found in the fruits and vegetables and nuts that come from plants. Eating more animal-derived food ends up causing more inflammation in the body, causes more biological aging, and oxidative stress. As an aside, though, remember that not all carbs are created equal either. 
Eating a lot of white rice and potatoes, for instance, is relatively unnutritious. Uh, Those are basically empty carbohydrates. So the take-home message from this article for me was that I shouldn't feel guilty about sneaking in a sweet now and then, but only in moderation and only sweets that I really enjoy. For me, that means chocolate. I'm not going to waste my time on low-quality sweets like soda pop or lumps of sugar like hard candy or cotton candy. I shouldn't be eating too much meat, and the more fresh fruits, vegetables, and nuts I eat, the better. Now, there's a lot of criticism of this paper. Some of it's coming from advocates of diets like the ketogenic diet or the Atkins diet that are emphasizing low-carbohydrate intake, but with more dependence on animal products. But there's also some concern about the methods used in this study. For instance, it wasn't the clinical analysis. It was more of a demographic observational type of study. And correlation analyses like that could be very tricky. Just because two things are correlated doesn't mean that there's a cause and effect. And there's some concern about how accurate these diet questionnaires are. Are people really honest in what they're saying they eat every day? How much they exercise, etc.? As I mentioned before, there was some uh, concern that they were excluding people who were eating too few of calories or too many calories. They also excluded people who developed diabetes, heart disease, or experienced a stroke sometime before the third visit during this study. The researchers thought that would confound the results. But there's a lot of respectable nutritionists who are rising to the defense of this paper, and they think that it's the best report that's been done on this topic in a while. As for me, I don't really have a horse in that race, and reading the article, it seemed to be recommending pretty moderate dietary guidelines that don't seem very radical to me, and they seem to make some sense. It'll be interesting to see how the medical community in general responds to this paper, Will the federal government change their dietary guidelines in the future? It'll certainly be interesting to see if this paper affects the way Americans eat in the future. Did you know that if you're an average American, you watch about 16 hours of pharmaceutical ads on TV every year? And it might seem like the number of ads we see on TV are increasing, And you're right, they are on the increase. The pharmaceutical industry is spending billions of dollars every year on TV advertising. Turns out this is not a worldwide phenomenon. Actually, there's only two countries in the world that allow advertising of pharmaceutical products on TV. New Zealand and the United States. So the rest of the world doesn't even allow pharmaceutical companies to advertise on TV. Now, we haven't always had pharmaceutical products advertised on TV. In fact, there really wasn't any kind of advertising for pharmaceutical products because the medical community thought that it was more important for the patient to get their information from their doctor rather than from some private entity. But in 1962, Congress granted the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, with the authority to regulate the labeling and advertising of prescription drugs. And it wasn't until 1969 that the rules were completed by the FDA. And it was called direct-to-consumer advertising. And those rules are advertisements cannot be false or misleading. Advertisements must include both the risks and the benefits of the drug that's being advertised. 
and that whatever risk or side effect that's itemized in the label for that drug has to be included in the advertisement. That last rule is the killer because that's a lot of information that has to be included in that advertisement. But you can see it in newspapers and magazines that are advertising prescription drugs. The ads will be a full-page newspaper ad or it will be composed of several pages of a magazine. And that's because they have to list all the side effects and risks. Well, most television ads are, what, 15 seconds, 30 seconds, a minute at the most. That's just not enough time to list all the side effects and risks of that medicinal product. And so you didn't see TV ads for the longest time. But then eventually the FDA changed the rules. The FDA announced that as long as the advertiser doesn't mention what the pharmaceutical product actually treats, as long as they don't talk about what disease is being treated by that medicine, They don't have to list all the side effects and risks of that medicine, just the major risks. You've probably observed this too when you're watching TV and there's an ad for medicine. You'll watch it and there'll be happy people riding bikes and having a picnic with their family. And you don't know what the disease is. You don't know what this medicine's actually treating. And then sometime before the end of the ad, there'll be someone speaking really rapidly about the major risks and side effects, but it'll just be five or six or seven of them. And then they'll always talk about, see your doctor, talk to your doctor about this, and that's part of the rules. And then they'll always list a website, a phone number, maybe a magazine article where you can get more details about that medicine. That's also required by the FDA Now, all these warnings that they do list in these TV ads telling you to go see your doctor, you might think that would intimidate consumers or potential consumers from buying that product. But studies have shown that all these warnings about side effects, etc., actually have the effect of building consumer confidence in that medicine. It's the opposite of what you'd expect. I'll give you an example of that. Say a A man and a woman are talking at a bar or whatever, and he's interested in her, and he's trying to convince her to go out with him. And that man says, you know, I'm perfect, perfect for you. I don't have any faults that I can think of. What's the woman going to think of that versus a man who says, well, I do the best I can. I, I do drive too fast, and my house is a little messy, and I snore. Well, which man is the woman more likely going to be interested in? The one who at least pretends or seems to be honest. So that appears to be what's happening when a consumer or a potential consumer hears about all these side effects and risks that are listed in the TV ad. It actually builds their confidence in that product rather than repel them. So advertising drugs on TV really works, and it's now a $6 billion industry. And depending on what study you're looking at, somewhere between 18% and 30% of Americans say that they have gone to their physician to request a specific medicine that they saw advertised on TV. And another study showed a few years ago that when physicians are faced with a patient that requests a specific medicine, they're more likely to prescribe that medicine. So whether you like it or not, advertising works, and that's why we see so much of it on TV. There was a seminal paper that was published in 2007 that ended up advocating the banning of this kind of direct-to-consumer advertising for pharmaceutical products. This study analyzed a very large number of advertisements on TV for pharmaceutical products, 
and found them focusing more on describing the symptoms of the disease rather than educating the public about the disease mechanism or describing the risk factors of the disease and downplaying the lifestyle changes that could help ameliorate this disease. This study also observed that a lot of TV ads for medicines are just appealing to the public at the emotional level. So the authors of this 2007 paper ended up advocating the banning of direct-to-consumer advertising for pharmaceutical products. Since that time, a scandal emerged having to do with false advertising for Lipitor, which is a statin used for treating high cholesterol levels. Then in 2015, the AMA, the American Medical Association, called for a ban on direct-to-consumer advertising of pharmaceutical products. Well, you can imagine the pharmaceutical industry responded to these criticisms, and so did the FDA. The pharmaceutical industry promised that they would try to educate consumers more about specific diseases. They promised they would present a more balanced approach in their advertisements. And they said they would try to mention more about how lifestyle or diet might help with the disease. So that raises the question, how are they doing? How is the FDA and the pharmaceutical industry doing in their commitment to make their advertisements more educational? The research was done at the University of South Florida, and it was published in May 2018 in the Annals of Family Medicine. And what the researchers tried to do was to reevaluate the pharmaceutical advertisements again, but using the same standards as used in that original 2007 paper. That way, that 2007 paper could represent a benchmark to compare with what's going on now. These researchers recorded all of the TV advertisements for medicines that were broadcast over a 13-week period on ABC, CBS, NBC, and Fox. And they established a large set of rubrics for which they used to analyze these ads. And then they had two graduate students watch the ads. The students were first trained for 36 hours to analyze the ads in a, in a uniform fashion and then the students end up watching 868 ads. After averaging the scores from these two viewers, they basically found that in spite of the efforts of the FDA and the pharmaceutical industry to improve these medicine ads, things really haven't changed much since the 2007 paper. The ads are longer now. They're longer by 30% compared to back then, but they actually provide less factual information. In addition to the ads being longer than they used to be, they also showed more positive emotions than the ads used to, especially showing what the patient was like after they took the medicine. This is believed to be due to the advertisers realizing that the negative emotions that used to be used in ads just weren't working. There was a drop in the number of ads that specifically spell out what lifestyle changes could be made to help out with that disease. Even though more than half of the ads did portray people in activities like bicycling, hiking, running, playing sports, they didn't specifically spell out that doing those kind of things might help with whatever disease is being addressed. They also observed a big increase in the number of ads showing patients being able to go back to work or participate in family events after taking the drug. So in comparison to that 2007 paper, 
these researchers actually reported that the gap between providing educational material about the disease in question and just promoting the medicine actually went up over the last decade. So this commitment from the FDA and the pharmaceutical industry to provide more educational material in their advertisements for medicines just hasn't come to fruition yet. There's a real problem with these ads showing what might happen to patients when they take the medication, that now the patients are participating in recreational activities, they're happier, more social approval, they're regaining control of their life. The problem with that is that it might make prospective customers get motivated by what they call off-label outcomes. So if you have a certain disease and you see an advertisement for a medicine that treats that disease and you see the people in the advertisement riding bicycles and laughing with their family, you might think that if you take that medicine, that's going to be your experience. You're going to be be able to ride bikes and have a better time with your family, even though the drug might not make you more athletic, it might not make you happier. This concept of off-label outcomes reminds me of that joke about a patient with her doctor. And she asked the doctor, hey, after I have this surgery, am I going to be able to play the piano? And the doctor says, oh, yeah. And the patient says, great, I've always wanted to play the piano. Getting back to the educational aspect of these ads, the researchers observed that very seldom did the ads actually list how many people were affected by such and such a disease. They would rather say things like, many people are fighting this disease, or thousands of people have this disease, by not specifically telling us how many people are inflicted with a certain disease. They might be maximizing the number of people who self-diagnose that disease. The authors of this paper conclude by advocating more attention to this situation. They recommend that the pharmaceutical industry provide more educational information in their ads, But since the industry has already claimed that they were improving on that, they conclude that the industry really can't regulate themselves. The authors suggest that the FDA or other federal agencies need to raise expectations and then apply more regulation to these advertisements. But I myself am not holding my breath. I'm glad I read this article, though. It's made me a more careful and cautious consumer of pharmaceutical products. Now when I watch TV commercials about different medicines, I get a kick out of trying to spot the different ways that they're trying to manipulate me. Thank you. As always, thanks for listening to Bench Talk, the week in science. We think the world is a fascinating place, and science is a good way to explore it. Don't leave it all up to the lab rats. Go out and be a citizen scientist. Science empowers all of us. If you want to read any of the research articles we've discussed today, links can be found on Bench Talk's webpage at forwardradio.org.